episode three of Mostly Spoilers. My name is Mike Tanner. I'm Laird Smith. And Laird, I have a question for you today. Please do. Why do you love Settlers of Catan so much? Well, you see, it's opposite day, and uh, Settlers of Catan is, is one of the greatest board games ever made when it's opposite day. Otherwise, it ranks uh, with Monopoly and, you know, Monopoly again as one of the worst board games it's ever made. Now, Monopoly is a bad is game. one of the most played games of all time, obviously. Yeah. Pres- prob- I would argue Monopoly has probably sold more copies than any board game in the history of time. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a true statement? I'd say the National Enquirer has sold a hell of a lot of copies. It doesn't make it even remotely newsworthy. Uh, well, that's Journalist a good point. integrity, zero. But Settlers of Catan was German Game of the Year. It was in 1995, and in 1995, it was a hell of a thing. Now we know better. See, but this is, you and I talked about this earlier, about the idea of if it was a hell of a thing then, shouldn't it be a hell of a thing now? And I think specifically in the case of this, no, because it was a hell of a thing then in that it taught people how to go beyond Monopoly. It's still used by a lot of people, myself included at one point, as a gateway game to get away from the basic staples of life, Monopoly, uh, Parcheesi, Scrabble, Risk, Snakes and Ladders, which, again, not even a real game. Um, But once you've played it, you begin to understand, having experienced other games, why Settlers is also no good. So you have played some other games, is what you're saying. To put it mildly. Yeah. Uh, how many how many different board games do you think you've played in your life? Easily over 100. Well, I would say easily over 100. We've played easily over 30? Yes. Yeah, so. Uh, what do you, what is your, like, what do you not, so, I'll, I'm going to finish the sentence here in a second. He's not. Uh, so, Settlers of Catan... For those who don't, who haven't necessarily played it, don't bother. Well, there's that. Yeah. But what is it about it that makes it not a good game? Well, um, chiefly, I think, is that Settlers of Catan has unique quality that it is possible to lose the game before you begin to play the game. Well, how? Well, because. To start with, in Settlers of Catan, before you even start taking turns, you have to set up. And it's sort of done snake draft style, where one player gets to put a thing, and the next player, and so on. And when it gets to the last player, they go two moves, and it wraps back around. Right. And your placements determine what placements are available to other players. You have to be so far removed from sure. the other yep. players' places. Two, I think it's two, two roads away from... Yeah, it's two roads. That's yeah. right. Now... Because of the random distribution of resources and because certain resources are needed to really have a chance in the game, it's possible that by the time it gets around to you, uh, whether in the first turn or in the second one, the placements available will be such that you cannot meaningfully gather what's needed to complete the game at, at any kind of pace that would give you a reasonable shot at victory. See, and I actually, so I actually also agree with you. And, and I loved Settlers of Catan. Like, when I started playing board games, or sort of the second generation of board games I played, because I grew up playing Risk and Monopoly, and uh, my, my best friend Emily and I played Monopoly roughly 10 to 15 games a week for almost a year. Um, and somehow are still friends. 
Um, That's impressive. But, I, you know, I've played all these different ones. And then when I started playing new, like, new, quote-unquote, new games, and this would have been ten years ago, probably, that I started playing Settlers, mm-hmm. um, I I thought it was great, because it was something different. It was something... Yep. It wasn't roll a dice, move around a board, pick up stuff as you go kind of thing. There was something unique, unique to it. There is a reason that I also don't... Not only do I not think it's a good game... I actually don't really even think it's a game. I think it. I think the closest thing I can draw equivalence to is it is very much like playing roulette. In that, quite literally, you can bet on in, in roulette. You can bet on you know a specific number, which mm-hmm. is kind of dumb in roulette, or you can bet on black or red, yeah. or you can bet on bunches of numbers. Like, it'll be within this set. A combo. Or, or a combo of these kind of things. And I really feel like that's what you do when you play Catan. The game starts and you go, I think it's going to be a six that's yeah. going to get rolled. I think it's oh, going to be man. an eight. Don't even talk to me about six in Catan. <clears throat> and so then you can, so that you literally have these numbers and there's different, you know, just like Settlers of Catan, I mean, betting on six or eight in Settlers of Catan is like betting on red or black. In that, if you bet on red, you should get it 50% of the time, and it's sort of going. Whereas betting on, you know, three is like betting on, you know, black four, where, you you know, there's less of a chance of you getting it. But basically, you could just say, all right, every time the dice is rolled, you get a point if your dice number comes up. Mm-hmm. And five points is worth one of these things. And four of those is a win, you know, just to break it up. You know, I know that's yeah. 20, but still. And I really feel like that's what it feels like. It just it feels like it resembles a game without giving you really the requirements of decision-making that that all the decisions are made up front. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are decisions that are made in the game provided you get resources. And <clears throat> probability says you will get some resources that you will be able to do some things with. Um, but I would say that those, so much like, say, a game of roulette, mm-hmm. all the, cho- you know, the choice is made at the beginning, and then what you're saying is that there's choices down the road, but that means you have to have already won to a certain extent. I mean, if you literally, if a four is never rolled, yeah, but I think, and I think, you're on four, I think the distinction, though, is that, like, in roulette, let's say I put it on a really safe choice. I put my money on black. Sure. Okay, I have slightly under 50% chance of getting this because there's a couple things on the, on the wheel that will kill anybody. Yep. Yep. But I put, my, I put my money on black, so I put 20 bucks on black. Red comes up. Okay? Yep. I lose that 20 bucks. That's yes. 20 bucks I actively do not have anymore. Sure. Okay? There is a, there's a certain time limit where eventually uh, I will go broke. I will become destitute and bankrupt. So that is the finite limit on that game. In Catan... It is theoretically possible that nobody gets an advantage in resources. We just keep rolling sevens all game, yep. and nothing useful ever happens. Uh, but nobody is actually damaged by this happening. So true. I I don't think it's a reasonable comparison necessarily, but I do think that the luck element is a damaging uh, issue, and it's one kind of thing that these these German style or Euro games, as they're called have worked to get away from is this this strong element of luck that can screw you. One of the things I really hate about Settlers is that your turn can be not for you. Your turn right. can entirely be about other players. 
Because if you don't currently have resources with which you could make a decision, uh, you have to roll the dice on your turn. And you can basically give other people resources on your turn and then go, well, that was the sum of my ability to do things. Here's the dice for your turn. Now, we've played plenty of games Mm -hmm. where when it comes to your turn, you don't really have anything to do. Uh, because of another issue that we've encountered a bunch of times. But this is a different kind of game we're going into. Uh, A very, very different kind of game. So one of the things that we play a lot of are cooperative or, uh, I don't know if you dubbed this term or someone else did, but co-oppetitive games. Um, Yeah, no, I know that term. So the the idea of cooperative or co-oppetitive games is either, A, we're all working together to do something, Mm -hmm. or B, we're all kind of working together, but we all have our own agendas in the end. Mm. Um, And one of the things that I like about cooperative and co-oppetitive games is the idea that there can be complex win scenarios. Like, one of the things I don't love about Settlers of Catan is there's a winner, and then everyone else has lost. Um, One of the things I love about Dead of Winter, which isn't necessarily my favorite game, but it's a game I enjoy. It is a good game. Is that you can all kind of win and then find out, well, we didn't, you didn't actually win because you didn't do this thing, but everyone can win and no one can win. And there's all these different scenarios where, you know, two people won and four people lost because of this and that. And I find that those are really interesting. Um, But one of the things that we get into a lot is turn bullying. Yes. Um, Which is where uh, basically when it comes time for your turn, the people around the table have basically said, this is what you should do. Do it. Yeah. And then it becomes not cooperative so much as solitaire. Right. Yeah. Um, So what are some of the things that – so we play games every Thursday night. We do. We've done this now for a few years. It's going on three or four. Uh, I think it's going on – Three, yeah, um, that I've been involved, anyways, mm-hmm. um, and so we have a, a game group that's a, a pretty regular group. I mean, mm-hmm. this group's been together for that period of time. Regular in terms of scheduling, not not regular in terms of normalcy. Not regular people whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, we all have our little quirks. Um, we actually make a lot of jokes about like. <laughs> The problem with each of us. Oh, yes. So, so for example, I can't remember rules to any game we've really ever played. Uh, I basically never have any idea of what to do with the game when the game begins. And then I just sort of tag along. You warm up. That's the, the thing. Game. Um, Everybody's got their own pace, though. But where we were on... So, Turnbull. Turnbull, uh, yeah. So... I think that a good game, that a, that a great game, I should say, even if it's cooperative or co-oppetitive, should be able to overcome the concept of turn bullying. But I haven't seen a game that really does perfectly. See, the thing is, I don't think you can put the onus on the game. And True. Yeah. I, I think that the... The skill in the game design for a cooperative game has to be independent of whether or not they were able to solve the turn bullying issue. Because if someone's really dedicated to it, you can't solve it. And I have the perfect example for this. Because I have played Hanabi. Now, Hanabi is sort of like, uh, a very literal sense, collaborative solitaire. 
where you as a team are putting together... Is this the Chinese fireworks game? Yes, it's the Japanese fireworks game. Japanese fireworks game. Someone the other day was telling me that they played this game that they didn't entirely understand where it was fireworks on the back of a card. And I was like, I've played this game, and I I kept saying Mao. I kept in my head, and I know it's not Mao, I know what Mao is, but I kept thinking that's what it was. Anyways, Hanabi. Hanabi, yes. So you're trying to create these fireworks stacks, of course, from one to five in five different colors, and the only thing is you can't see your own cards. You literally have to rely on other players to provide the clues necessary for you to take your turn. It is absolutely 100% reliant on a very limited amount of information that you need to get from other people and then the decision you have to make yourself because they cannot tell you anything. Right. They are completely fixed at if you did not pay a token to give one of these exact specific clues, you keep your mouth shut. You cannot give any hints. Right. And my sister I played with, and she really enjoyed that game, and she would cheat to turn bully. She would constantly try and find ways to ahem or to wiggle her head in such a way or try to do, you know, don't you remember we had this complex signal built up that would signal you that you're actually supposed to pick this card? And I'm like, that's not the point of the game. Right. Finding ways to add another layer of information is cheating. But in her mind, winning is more important than the collaborative experience there. And she's a competitive person, and I admire that about her sometimes, but (laughs) not when it comes to Hanabi. And my point is this. Antoine Bauza designed that game about as well as you could to prevent term bullying. And a person who was determined enough to make it happen still found a way. I don't know if what your sister did would really be considered term bullying as much as it would be considered just straight up Well, imagine if you're there... Well, I think it's both. I think it's very clearly both. Because on the one hand, yeah, she's cheating, definitely. But on the other hand, she's cheating in that she is trying to put more input into your turn than she is supposed to be able to. Because the game has tried to prevent her from doing that. Like, what she's trying to do is tell you, "Mm, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to, you know. Right. Yeah. So she's trying to add that in. And ultimately, that's what it kind of comes out to be. And sometimes you will get actual table crosstalk, which is not really allowed, where it's kind of, you know, oh, don't give him that clue, give him that clue. Or, you know, there's someone right. else you can give a clue to. And again, <clears throat> not allowed, but people will house rule it to make themselves more capable of winning the game. See, and that's where I think there's such a big difference between... I think that, I think that people who can really love games, and I think that this is true of most of our game group... Mm-hmm is people who can lose and be okay with that. I think certain games lend I, themselves better to that. Though. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I you know, there's games that, you know, you lose and it's super frustrating, but I think that one of the things that I love about when we play games is that it is a real rarity that I don't enjoy myself because I lost. I remember, in fact, a specific instance recently in which you lost, but you enjoyed yourself tremendously, tremendously as part of the pro- and enjoyed you know what I'm myself talking about. This. I know exactly is, what you're talking about. And this is another game uh, which is not cooperative in the traditional sense. This is competitive, yeah. but it it can include cooperative elements, which is a very right. different concept than co-oppetitive. Right. Because co-oppetitive, you're all working together and then trying to squabble at the end over who won the most. Right, right. Um, this is sort of 
competitive operative where you are all against each other, but you can start teaming up. Right. And this is Cosmic Encounter, which is a game about uh, aliens trying to colonize other solar systems. Uh, Now, in this game, in a recent (laughs) session of it, uh, I was playing a race called the Fungus, and we had the ability, when we defeated our enemies, to wrap them in cosmic fungus and make them part of our giant space armada. So I had these massive networks of mushroom ships that were crawling around the galaxy. And in an early encounter with Mike... The earliest encounter. The The beginning of the game. Yes. uh, He was determined not to let the galactic (sighs) fungus have its way, so he added more ships into the battle. And then I played my cards right, and I defeated him anyway, at which point I took almost half of his ships and put them into one... I lost eight ships. Out of 20. Out of 20. you lost, what's that, 40%? Yeah. Yes. Uh, Which became part of my massive space mushroom ship. Mm Mm-hmm. And none could defeat me. All the other players hated and feared me. My black fungus ships of doom. It was fantastic. And literally black tokens. I was so happy. I love playing the bad guy. Now, Uh, yeah. I like playing the bad guy sometimes, too. It's lots of fun. (laughs) So toward the end of the game, we're getting into a position where we need to get our final victories in, and and Mike says to me, look, I'm attacking this other player. Do you want to join in and you'll share in the points? And I said, that sounds great. Let me send one of my big mushroom ships. And I must stress, it was not the one that had taken all of Mike's troops hostage, but it was another successful one anyway. So I send in this big mushroom ship, and Mike leading the battle, he puts down his attacking card, and it's... A negotiate. He has surrendered the fight to the other player, ensuring the defeat of every single vessel on his side of the battle, including Including the giant mushroom ship. And I'm looking and I'm going, there's nothing I can do to prevent this, to escape this zilch. My mushroom ship goes kaboom and everything it was holding on to scatters back into the void of space. See, here's the interesting thing about that game. I lost that game on yes. essentially the first turn of the of the game. It would have been I mean it was possible, but because of the dynamic because of the mechanics of the game in terms of how those uh, ships would be released if you were defeated. It was, even if I had yeah. have defeated you, it was going to take eight rounds, which I don't even know if we have eight rounds total. It to, would have taken that my very long back. time. Yes. Um, so it was pretty obvious from the get-go that I'd lost. And there was a brief moment where I was really upset about that, where I was like, it, it sucks to lose... So early in the game. It sucks to literally be like, the game has just begun, mm-hmm. and I am basically defeated. But I must stress, and this is funny, if you hadn't surrendered that combat, mm-hmm. you had a shot at winning the game. By tagging in, along. By tagging along with another player, by tagging yep. along with me. Yep. But I also would have had a shot at winning the game. Yes. As a matter of fact, what ended up happening on the very next turn after his... Is that because I had lost in that battle, I was not invited to the mutual victory of the other three players. Yeah. So Mike and I lost, the other three players won, and you Mike know, sat back with the <laughs> happiest look on his face because he had accomplished something better than the actual objective of the game. He got revenge. Yeah. And it was super satisfying. It was very satisfying, and it was, you know... 
I, I really feel like, you know, I, I have a son. My son. I really feel like you have a son six. as well. I really feel like I have a son. So my son is six, and my son is is just starting to grapple with the idea of can something be fun and you still lose. Uh, you got a wonderful uh, Christmas present for my family, which was a beautiful game called uh, Magic Labyrinth. I really like that. Um, it is really fantastic. I think I'm going to try and bring it, if I can remember, I think I'm going to bring it to game night on Thursday just to have a quick little sure. run through of it. Yeah. Um, but the idea of the Magic Labyrinth, it's it's played, it's technically age six and up, I believe. I've also got a three-year-old daughter who's actually gotten quite good at it. Um, you can, you can kind of scale down the difficulty level. But the idea of the Magic Labyrinth is that you're moving your figures along the top of this board in an effort to get to... Um, to get to tokens that are on the board. Yeah. Um, underneath the board, there your figurine has a magnet, and there's a magnetic ball attached underneath it, and then there are walls that you cannot see because they're actually under the board. And if you try and cross over those, your ball drops down, you have to go back to your starting point. Mm-hmm. And you basically have to try to remember where everything is and move yourself around through that, through that way. My son loves when we're playing it and has just started to glimpse the idea of like that was fun even though I didn't win Mm -hmm. and I think that's a really valuable thing when you're playing games to actually be able to reconcile is the idea that you can have fun and lose yeah Um, I, I, I think that I would say that the end of that Cosmic Adventures game, mm-hmm. a game which I was one of two losers out of five players, so three people won, I lost, I Blair lost, lost. Um, was one of the most satisfying game moments I've had. The only one I can say that I actually think was for sure more satisfying Mm -hmm. was a last second switch of power and win in the Game of Thrones game (laughs) where uh, literally everyone was like, okay, we'll pack it up. And I was like, actually, uh, I know I'm in fifth right now and I know Tristan's winning, um, but I have these cards and I'm pretty sure it means I win. And I did. It it was was glorious. Yeah. so, you know, maybe winning does add that extra, you know, just over the top. But I think that one of the things that I would really encourage people to do is just enjoy games for the sake of enjoying games rather than enjoying games yeah. from a, a pure win scenario. And I should point. point out, too, that, that that game of Cosmic Encounter, I had a lot of fun being the bad guy. Right. I knew nobody would... Uh, ally with me. I knew nobody would take me into their confidence. Nobody would make deals. I offered and I was, to let you come along with me. Yeah, about that. Go to hell. Um, <laughs> but I had a lot of fun with that. And the thing is, when you pulled off that trick uh, and spoiled my chances of winning, I actually also found that very satisfying right. because I was like, I completely deserve what happened to me. Yeah. I should have known better than to get involved with that. And that was really well thought out and funny. Yeah. Um, and that, to me, was really satisfying. There was a lot of depth in that game for how short it is. And how, like, uninvolved, like, it, it, it's not a it's not a huge... Like, we play a games... We play a lot of games that have these 
huge boards with excessive setups and and kind of craziness. And that's a very, very simple and straightforward setup. Yeah. It's not overly complicated. It doesn't have a ton of moving parts. Uh, It's just a, a lot of fun. And I think, you know, gaming should be really about that fun part definitely um so we're gonna as as we leave this episode Mm -hmm. there's a couple things i want to sort of get so if you could recommend Mm -hmm. three games one just wait okay more to it one is for someone who does not have a lot of experience with games okay one is for someone who like really enjoys games but hasn't played a ton of different ones like so they're they understand game mechanics and those kind of things. And one is for someone who has played a lot of games. What are the three games that you go to for those easy, medium, hard levels? Well, easy, I'm going to go with two separate ones. Because I think there's two kind of good starter games. Oh, I, I think you're going to go with one of those games I hate. But yep. continue. Yeah, uh, One of them, the one you hate, is Ticket to Ride. Okay, that wasn't actually the one I was... Oh, okay, well, fine, that's yeah. good. Uh, Ticket to Ride is a game about building train networks. And it's it's got just enough of, a, of an edge to it in terms of having to think of taking root cards that it's not as simplistic as the concept would suggest. So I, I like that as a good gateway game. Okay. It's not a game I'd seek out and play now because I've just got so many better options. Yeah. Uh, the other one that's a good starter game that I still enjoy is Carcassonne. Okay. Yep. And Carcassonne is a tile laying game, which I really like because you're collaboratively constructing this board and trying to find new ways to create scoring opportunities. And it, it's it's kind of a fun game to just look at. Uh, it's also got a lot of variability right now, so if it's it's the kind of thing where if you pick it up and you have fun with it, you can add in just ridiculous amounts of expansions. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, so those are your easy games. Those are easy. Yeah. Okay. Medium. Medium. Uh, well, one game that I really really enjoy that I've been sort of getting people into once they've already started playing some games is Tokaido. And Tokaido... This is the one that I hate. This is the one that you hate. But the thing about Tokaido is I don't think you've gotten an opportunity to experience it the way it's best played. Because we've only ever played it, you and I, with five players. Right. It's a four-player game. Okay. That allows for five players. Four players gets you the maximum number of possible moves during the game... And the thing about Tokaido is that it is a very relaxing experience. It's very sort of straightforward. It doesn't ask you to rush. And underneath the really beautiful artwork, because everything in that game is fantastic. Yeah. And and the wonderfully aesthetic theme is a relentlessly cutthroat and precisely mathematical super engine. I have played this game. <laughs> See, and we didn't play it that way, which no, is why... I know that. Yeah. But the thing is, once you sort of warm up to it and get more invo- more skilled with it, yeah. it becomes incredibly cutthroat. Sure. You know, this is ostensibly a game about Japanese tourism. It is really a game about leaving all the other tourists broke and starving. Right. And you don't even know that because yeah. the aesthetic covers it so well. Yeah. But I've played a lot of games of this. It's really well balanced. It's really well designed. And again, the artwork is beautiful on that. Okay. Uh, so that is a, that's your medium game. That is my medium game. What's your what's your like? Hey, this is a you know not a game for someone who's just getting started, but a game that would really blow people out of the water when they when they really got into it. I mean, that category just contains so many things. Uh, one that I one that I hated when I first played it because I did not understand what was going on 
but now that I've played it more, I love, and I, I really want to get it to the table at some point, is called Solkin, the Mayan Calendar. Solkin, and, by the way, is spelled T-Z-O-L-K-A-apostrophe-I-N. He knows that because he's reading it off the box. Because I'm reading it off the box, which yeah. is right here. Uh, and Solkin <clears throat> is a worker placement style game. You have to put your troops out, and then and then they have to do work for you. And you have to be sort of judicious in which spots you take because the other players have opportunities to take up spots as well. But what makes this a very difficult and complicated game and really ingenious is that uh, all the positions are on moving gears. Right. And it's not when you place the worker that you get the results. It's when you pick the worker up. So if you're willing to commit a worker for long enough, they can get you some truly wonderful rewards toward the later stages of the gear. But you also risk running out of workers and being forced to call somebody back early. Um, When it's really working, when people understand what's going on, it's incredibly complicated but elegant. And I really appreciate that about that game. See, and I I don't generally... I've never... Prior to Zolkian, I didn't really like worker placement games. And I actually learned to like them from that game and now kind of enjoy them so um so i'm going to give my three picks some of which i see before me here um one of my favorite games uh partially from an aesthetic standpoint and partially just from a simplicity where it can get complicated but it's not overly complicated is machi koro okay um i think machi koro is a really beautiful looking game for how simple it is uh graphics are are really quite quite well done yeah and it's not a game that's difficult to wrap your head around it's there can be some some pretty crazy strategy in it but mostly it's it's just kind of a a lot of fun to play yeah um my middle game for complication would probably be seven wonders seven wonders is um seven wonders is a game where i literally the one the thing i love about seven wonders is uh, number one it always keeps me guessing there's so much to it that it, it really keeps you kind of motivated to see what's happening i love the the game mechanic of passing the cards because you're not only choosing what you get but you're choosing the opportunity of the next player and i find that adds in such a like if you just picked your cards it wouldn't be nearly as like not frustrating but like just like you get that sense of like I do I you have conflicting priorities right you're thinking it, it, what's best for me but what what is this going to do for them yeah. as we move through um, I also love the fact that the game of seven wonders is not decided until the end of the game of seven wonders it really is one of my favorite things of that game is adding up points and realizing that you've either won amazingly or lost horrifically and at no point I really feel does that have a great impact on the game yeah which I think makes it really about an experience and not just the play itself. And it's worth noting that that's actually considered right now like the top family game on board game. Geek. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, the the game I'll say that I would recommend for people who have, you know, who have done... I'm going to give two of these, actually. Okay. Um, that's only fair. Much like you did. I might even give three. Uh, so the hey. first one I'm going to give is a game that I... I've never done well in. Okay. And I don't entirely understand the strategy in but from a a sheer enjoyment level of how it looks and feels is scythe Um, yes the the worker placement in that 
is one of the most beautiful things I've seen in a game. As you remove things and you, you find new things underneath them yeah. and, and all sorts of things, really just adds an amazing level of depth to a game I've, I have not mastered the strategy behind. Um, but I think a that's thing. a big one. I'll tell you a thing. And I should have actually mentioned Scythe as well, honestly. I forgot about it because I actually don't own it. A friend of ours right. owns it. And he bought it. He bought it on the strength of me telling him what the theme was, right. which was sort of post-World War One Europe with giant steampunk mechs. Yeah. And that's what the game is, and it's awesome. But yeah. it's also about workers and curating your economy. And, yeah. and I'll tell you a thing about Scythe that's going to make you really excited. They're doing the final expansion for it right now, okay. and the final expansion makes it a legacy game. So, here was the other thing. The reason I said three yep. is because there are two other games I'll put in if you're gonna if you're really going to get into gaming. Yeah. I would strongly recommend playing a legacy game. Yes. Uh, so, we have played uh, one... Well, really, we've played two, two. full yeah. legacy games, and we're working on our third. Yeah. Uh, we have played Risk Legacy and Pandemic Legacy Season 1. Yeah. And of, we've of got, Pandemic. like, in terms of campaign games, too, we've, we've put Imperial Assault on our belts. And that's a similar that, that's idea, true. but it's not a legacy game. Yeah, and, and I, I don't know why I necessarily didn't think of that, because that is the, one of the I games I I think there's I a love. distinction, but anyway. Um, but the thing about legacy games is that these legacy games have taken two games... That I do not enjoy. I do not enjoy Risk at all. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it growing up when I was 14. It was a great game because there weren't any other games. You try Risk uh, 2010 still, I think, but go on. And and I just, it, it, it's a game that for me was just very random, very dice rolly, mm-hmm. very, you know, very easy to, to lose on these things. Uh, and Pandemic is a game that I've never been good at because I feel like Pandemic is a game designed to make you lose, uh, which it, it Sort kind of, of is, is. yeah. Um, but Pandemic Legacy, adding these sort of long tail adventures to uh, Pandemic and to Risk where things matter the next time you play and mm-hmm. the board changes and grows. I mean, Pandemic Season 3 two. or Season 2 is blowing me away in terms of the growth of the map and those sorts of things mm-hmm. uh, without any other spoilers. That, that part's pretty obvious. This is but, only mostly spoilers. Um, it's mostly spoilers. Yeah. Uh, so that would be the thing I would recommend. I would recommend giving a a legacy game a try if you're an advanced game group who, yeah. who kind of regularly play. It's not a game you can just pick Crack up and out. play yeah. because it, it's so, you know, that way. Now, was that like slot two collectively, or was that no? That was that slot was two, two and three. three. Yeah, those are those are my three. Uh, All right, so there yeah. you have it. That'll uh, that'll round us out for board games for the moment, I think. Yeah, and uh, if you do have any questions about any board games, if you're wondering, like, hey, these are some games we like or some games we don't like, what then would be don't play settlers. Uh, don't ever play settlers. Uh, play Monopoly. Uh, only in that you will be getting to do something that even the royal family is not allowed to do. Actually true. Uh, and just play more games. Games are fun. Start, you know, put down your phone, put down all the other stuff, and uh, grab some games, roll some dice, and uh, have some fun. Yeah.